selling it and you know doing whatever with the profits you know putting in the stock market this and that um they could still get those advantages of real estate but without having to deal with all the headaches of being a landlord it's no secret that real estate is one of the best investment vehicles out there but how can we determine which strategies will best align with our financial ambitions well you've come to the right spot whether you're an active real estate entrepreneur a passive investor or looking to get into real estate investing our goal is to provide investors with insights and strategies for building our portfolios all while protecting our capital i'm daniel nichols and this is the two smart assets real estate investing podcast what's going on everybody welcome back to the show i'm your host daniel accompanied by our guest for the week tim and today we are the two smart assets for those not familiar with Tim, he's the founder and CEO of Zana Investments, a Tampa-based real estate investment firm, and he's passionate about helping fellow military veterans escape the landlord trap and get competitive returns by passively investing in real estate. Tim, my man, it is great to see you. Welcome to the show. Danny, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yep. Pumped to have this conversation. We're going to dive into a lot of uh, cool stories and stuff like that about you and your experience, stuff like that. Before we do that, though, tell us more about uh, your background and how you got into real estate. Sure. So most of my background is military, right? Straight out of high school, a month after graduating, I was I was at basic training. Uh, did about a, a two year enlistment, then went to uh, Florida State for undergrad. And while I was there, an ROTC recruiter got to me and convinced me that I should go back into the army uh, this time as an officer, um, mainly because one, you know, it was a guaranteed job upon graduation, which is always nice. Uh, but two, since I, you know, had been enlisted already, it would be an opportunity to to better understand the soldiers that I would be leading. So um, did that. And from about 2003 to 2008, I was uh, active duty army, uh, did a bunch of deployments, all that fun stuff. And that's really about the time when I first started to get into real estate. It, it first kind of piqued my interest. Um, like a lot of people read Rich Dad, Poor Dad for the first time in that in that period and you know just started to understand the difference between assets and liabilities all the stuff that i didn't learn in high school um and certainly didn't learn in the army uh, and so i i thought i wanted to start buying single family properties and make money that way uh went to one of these conferences and you got to remember the time frame too like 2005 when okay. you know you know being a, a real estate investor in the single family market was was starting to get really hot up until it got too hot. Um, and just some some shady business practices out there. People selling, you know, these programs on CD at the time. Uh, luckily, it was, it was past <laughs> the tape era, but still listening to CDs in my car about, you know, driving for dollars and putting signs up that say, you know, we'll buy houses, call me and and all this stuff. And you know, I was about to get into it, but then I wound up getting deployed um, for like 15 months. And so life kind of got in the way and I, I forgot about real estate for a little bit, right? Um, sometimes we're just not in the right time and place to take advantage of, of what we learn. Um, and it wasn't until after I got out of the military and then after that, I was in grad school going to University of Denver, which I, I know you're familiar with. Right. And at that point, you know, it was more of the mindset that was stopping me than anything else because I was like, oh, I'm a poor college student again. You know, I couldn't possibly invest. Uh, I don't have any money. In fact, I was going in the opposite direction, you know, with debt, which we could talk mm -hmm. about later. And so it wasn't until, you know, I, I became like, you know, a real grown up and had my first like civilian job after grad school 
had a little extra money in my pocket. Um, you know, still had that debt, but I was determined to to do something, you know, start investing. And so uh, we set out to buy our first intentional investment property, which wound up being a duplex in Richmond, Virginia, because at the time we were living in Washington, D.C., which, as everybody knows, is prohibitively expensive. Um, and so there was no way I was going to be able to buy a duplex in, in D.C. And so Richmond was the next closest place uh, that we thought we could afford. And so found a, a, a duplex for 85000 Put about you know twenty to twenty five thousand down payment on that bad boy, and that's really where my investing journey got started. Awesome, man. I mean, it, it sounds like you had this this whole trajectory through the whole thing. You you thought about investing in real estate, then the timing wasn't right. You were deployed, come back, go to school, finish, get your your graduate degree, and then you're actually starting to try to build wealth after that point, right? But you know, like you said, you were you're a poor college student, and you'd accumulated some student loans uh, during that process, right? And so you kind of came out of it already in the hole, right? And I think a lot of us can relate to that, uh, myself included. I came out uh, heavily indebted as well. Um, so I want to talk about that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, going deep into student loan debt, you know, that's not, it's not really a joke. You know, people were struggling getting out of that and, and all that kind of thing. So looking back, you said, you know, you wanted to buy your first investment property. Um, was that the plan to kind of get yourself out of that student debt? And like, or did you have a plan other than that? Or was it like flipping the property, doing cash flow, accumulating more properties? How were you planning to get out of debt uh, with those student loans? Yeah. And so, you know, once the, the realization hit me, which was... <laughs> Well, after uh, the denial that had set in while I was in school, um, I I said that I needed a plan, right? Because I had, again, it was about 130000 wow. in school loan debt um, because I decided to go to a private school that was about <laughs> 50000 a year. Um, got the, the military to pay for like one year of it, but that's all that I had left on my benefits. And you know, I'll, I'll never say I regret any of it because that's where I, I met my my beautiful wife. So it all turned out great. But going to the debt, um, what I needed was a plan, right? Because I wanted to get rid of it. Uh, and the best way to do that was first consolidate it. Because the problem was I had like a bunch of different loans. You know, a lot mm. of people come out, different lenders, different rates. And some of them were as low as like 5%. And some were as high as like 8%. And you know, when they're 20 and 30 thousand dollar loans, that is significant. So right. luckily I was able to do a loan consolidation. And that way it was only one payment that I had to worry about. I also got it down to um, I think it was like 5.2%, something like that. So I significantly reduced the rate on some of those loans. And, you know, that in and of itself probably saved me tens of thousands of dollars over the the long term. Um, But it also made it just uh, a lot easier to handle um, from an administrative standpoint, right? One payment, you know, one lender. Um, And so that's, and I started to pay it down aggressively. You know, the minimum I think was like 1200, which, you know, is is a lot. But um, my wife and I, you know, are both in the, on the same sheet of music when it comes to like living below our means, which mm-hmm. was also very helpful um, in this situation. And so I was paying at least 1500 a month on those loans so that I could aggressively pay them down. And, you know, in DC, that's not that easy. I had a decent job, don't get me wrong, 
But, you know, another thing is we decided to buy in an area that other people weren't willing to live in. You know, we lived in Southeast DC, you know, on, on the other side of the river, which is both a, a physical and mental, um, like crossing point for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, we wanted something that cost a lot less money, like a hundred thousand less. Mm. And we were confident that the gentrification that was happening all around DC would in some way seep into where we were. And we were, we were kind of right. We did see significant appreciation. Um, plus I, I had a 90 pound Doberman, so I wasn't really worried about safety. Um, and so by living below our means, I was able to very aggressively pay down those loans. And then when we wound up moving in 2016, that appreciation of that home, you know, we wound up making about 85,000 from wow. the sale. And, you know, while we could have put that into a down payment for our next house or, you know, to pay off the car note or or whatever, we decided to just go ahead and pay off my loans, which at that point were at about 83000 Wow. So I literally just wrote a check for the 83 and some change to pay off those student loans. And I do not regret it to this day. That's super impressive, man. I love the fact that, you know, you talk about the consolidation. I think anybody who's had student loans has been through that process, right? You got all these different loans, different interest rates and all that stuff. So being able to consolidate them can be super beneficial. But then the story about you getting, you know, getting a property, you know, experiencing that appreciation, selling it, and then basically like eliminating all of those, all those student loans, man. So you could really start actually building from that point. Right. And so I think um, in the notes I saw, you know, you had all that student debt and now you're what 90 million in real estate, which is incredible. You know, that's just a complete turnaround, man. So let's dive into that. You bought the duplex and then you're off to the races. What happened next? Yeah. And to your point about the, the, the duplex, I did do that, you know, in conjunction while I was still paying those loans because I didn't want to feel like I was getting behind. Right. Like mm. everyone knows the sooner you start investing, the better. And, and even I was smart enough to realize that. And so we managed to save up that. I think it's like I said, twenty five thousand, which at the time was a lot of money for us to to throw down on something. But I wanted to, I wanted to see progress from yep. the investing standpoint too. Uh, the nice thing about you know paying off the school loans is then I was able to get even more aggressive on the investing side. You know, my my wife is the risk averse one; she does all the saving. I'm the all in. Let's let's do it. Um, Love and it. So after the duplex. Um, you know, that's listening to bigger podcasts or bigger pockets, listening to podcasts, reading all the books, you know, I, I somehow heard about, um, passive investing, right. Didn't understand it. Uh, you know, any of the concepts or anything like that. So I wound up going to a convention, I think in Dallas. Um, and this was like a Brad Sumrock event. And I really just drank from a fire hose for two days. And it's like, Half these concepts were flying over my head, but at least some of them were getting into my brain. And I walked away from that weekend, at least understanding the wave tops of what syndication is, how it works, how investors benefit on both the active and passive side. And it was enough to get me going and enough to get me curious. Uh, so that's when I decided that, hey, at, at minimum, I want to I want to try a passive investment. Let's let's see how this works. Uh, of concept. And so that's what I did. Um, you know, and I thought about doing the active thing at first, but I was like, I don't know enough about this to dive in to the to the deep end um, and be responsible for other people's money. So let's let's take it slow. 
Um, that and I was about to go on another deployment and I'd be okay. gone for a year. So I knew I wouldn't be able to take advantage of the the coaching, the training and all that stuff. It just didn't make sense. So instead of putting that, you know, 25,000 into a, a program, I was like, let me see if I can find uh, a syndicator who's willing to take that so that I can get into a deal. And, and you and I both know a lot of deals have a minimum of 50,000, but if you, if you catch us at the right time, sometimes you can get in for, for 25,000 or depending on the deal, you know, there's all these nuances. Anyways, this is 2017. I was able to, you know, find a, uh, a sponsor that I trusted. I, I did what due diligence I knew how to do at the time and invested 25,000, uh, into a deal in San Antonio. I think it was like 189 unit in San Antonio. Um, and so that was a little nerve wracking, right? Uh, it was, that's a leap of faith when you hand someone. And again, that was still a lot of money for me. Um, you know, we handed them the money and I'm over there in, in Baghdad in month five or whatever it is when that first distribution comes in and I'm like, okay, this is a real thing, you know? And it's like, you feel so much better, but at the same time, you're like, okay, this is a real thing. Now I need to figure out what I'm going to do with this knowledge, right? Um, and so that's when I, I think the, the the flip kind of switched that I was going to start doing this and maybe become a little more active because mm. I had the, the proof of concept. And so after I got back, that's when I went to, you know, a couple more conferences, really started doing the deep dive and understanding it, met up with some folks, brought in that network. Um, and got into my first GP deal in 2019. Sorry, as a general partner on a deal yep. in 2019, just for the audience. I, I hate to use too many acronyms. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Uh, um, and, you know, like a lot of folks, you know, we came out of this conference and we were just hyped up. We're like, let's do a deal. We need to get our first deal done. Everybody's all excited. Um, and so they came to me and said, hey, Tim, you know, you're a great guy. Do you want to passively invest in our deal? And I'm like, no, thank you. Um, you know, I want to do my own deal. So I'm going to save my capital so that I have something, you know, my own money to invest. Yeah. Um, but time goes by, you know, I didn't find my own deal. They came back to me and they're like, Hey, you still got the capital. You're still interested. <laughs> and they invited me to be a general partner on that deal because I was also boots on the ground. It was a Tampa deal, 59 unit portfolio. Um, the largest property in that portfolio, I think, was like 23 units. But there mm. were some quads and duplexes. Um, it was a little messy, but still, I was boots on ground. I was able to, you know, take pictures, deal with the city, and and stuff like that. So that was the value that I was bringing to that deal, in addition to my capital. Um, and so that's how I was able to kind of sneak in on my first deal as a general partner. And from there, it just it just kind of like you know snowballs because. You find out who you like working with and who you don't. And if you're a trusted asset, you know, if you did good work, then they're going to call you up and say, Hey, Tim, we got this deal. You want to, you want to come in on it? And, you know, if it, if the numbers work, if it makes sense to you, then, then you say, yeah. So that's really how it, it got going to, to where I am today. Yeah. It's awesome. Right. And it's, you know, you, you put, you know, all of these things into action and you're you're up and running you got that first pass investment going you got the proof of concept which is huge you know a lot of our uh, your story kind of parallels uh with mine as well you know brad summer concert or not concert i'm sorry conference in dallas uh you know 
kind of drank the juice and I was like, all right, let's get into a passive investment. And it was off to the races after that point. Right. But uh, it really sounds like also too, like you were just in the right place at the right time for getting into that GP deal. Right. I mean, you were a Tampa guy. It was a Tampa deal. They need boots on the ground. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. And so now you've been able to scale and you're doing, uh, you know, all of these deals and you're, and you're making moves and you got $90 million worth of real estate under your belt. Uh, it's pretty impressive, man. So congratulations on that. The one thing I kind of want to ask you about, you know, in your intro, we mentioned, you know, one of your goals is basically to support fellow military veterans escape the landlord trap, right? And now you're, you're, you're a sponsor, you know, you, you've done the passive investing thing. Tell us more about that though. Let's dive into the landlord trap. What is that and how does that apply to uh, people you're speaking to? Yeah. And so the, the landlord trap, so specifically, you know, veterans, you know, when they're in the military, a lot of times they're they're PCSing, which means, you know, permanent change of station. They're moving every three to five years. It's, it's just the way the military works, right? They got to mm. pick up, okay, now you're going to North Carolina. All right, now you're going to Georgia. Um, and so what happens is a lot of times folks will keep those those residences and just rent them out. So they're not intentional, you know, real estate gotcha. investments. But they're still renting them out. Maybe they're they're cash flowing. Maybe they're not. Um, but they're they're banking on the appreciation and they're trying to do the smart thing and hold on to it as an asset, right? right. Um, and so maybe they have one, then they move a couple more times. Maybe they have another. So some of these folks, especially after a twenty year career, may have like three properties, maybe okay. even more that that they've accrued over that time, but. Also accruing are the, the headaches associated with being a landlord. Um, and so they're starting to look at the numbers. And again, like I said, maybe they're cash flowing, maybe they're not, but the, you're almost always one expensive thing away from losing an entire year's um, profit, right? You Absolutely. have to replace a roof. Okay, well, there it goes. You have to replace a hot water heater. There it goes. Um, and so that and the dealing with the tenants and everything else the property manager a lot of them just don't feel like dealing with that stuff anymore um especially since most of them you know those properties are scattered all over the US okay so yeah you know then they're dealing uh with you know properties that are geographically dispersed um and that just becomes a pain and a lot of them are looking for something that's a little more passive and but they don't know about passive real estate investing in like syndications. So that's where the education piece comes in to say, hey, I know you had these properties and they've they probably appreciated pretty nicely. But if you're getting tired of, of all those headaches associated with being a landlord, there are other options. And you know, one of the things you can do is passively invest in real estate. You get competitive returns and you still get some amazing tax benefits you know, that, that you like so much about investing in these properties. And so that's what I'm really looking to do is that specific audience that I identify with. And I, I understand a lot of their situation is to show them that there, there is other options other than just selling it and, you know, doing whatever with the profits, you know, putting in the stock market, this and that, um, they can still get those advantages of real estate, but without having to deal with all the headaches of being a landlord. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you've been able to recognize that there's this this group of individuals who have there's a gap there, right? There's a need that needs to be filled. And so I love that you've been able to recognize that. So the question I have is, you know, I'm also a big fan of of being a limited partner in, in real estate investments. It's one of my favorite ways to invest, uh, especially in big deals. But uh, you know, I found that, you know, after speaking to a ton of investors, um, 
over the years is that, you know, it's not just for, it's sometimes it isn't for them, you know, just that type of investing, being a passive investor. So, so with that in mind, do you have any tips or maybe like qualifying questions investors can, can ask themselves to help to determine whether being a passive investor is right for them? Cause you know, some people, they want to have that control, you know, and they have yeah. a hard time like relinquishing that. Do you have, like I said, any like qualifying questions or anything that potential passive investors need to be asking themselves um, to determine if it's the right strategy for them? Yeah, and, and for sure. I mean, you're going to deal with different personality types and, you know, military folks. There's probably no one who likes being in charge more than uh, <laughs> military folks. So um, that is, that is a, a challenge and a consideration. But honestly, they really need to just look at what their investing goals are, right? So some people, they're, they're going to be looking for cash flow for whatever reason. You know, maybe they're on a fixed income and they want that cash flow as part of their, their income stream. Other people, they're not worried about the cash flow at all. And they're just like, all right, how much is this going to make me over the the hold of the deal over yep. the five years? Right. Is it is it going to be a, a two equity multiple, which means that my investment will double over that five years? Sounds awesome. Here's my money. Send me a monthly update. But otherwise, I'm good. Um, and there's people that are somewhere in between. And so it not only does it come down to the asset class itself, but it comes down to the deals because mm. some deals are going to provide more cash flow and maybe less upside, as we say, on the sale. But other deals, the cash flow is going to be really tight, but you know the overall returns are really good. So as people are thinking about what their investing goals are, they also need to not just look at the, the asset class, but they need to look at individual deals and be asking those questions of the, the sponsor to say, okay, well, this is really important to me. Does this deal provide that? And if they're a good sponsor, they should say, you know, yes, if it does and say, no, this probably isn't the right deal for you, but I'll definitely let you know if we have a deal that comes into our pipeline that does match what you're trying to do. Absolutely. And that's huge, especially when you're looking for a sponsor. You want somebody to tell you the truth, you know, not just be like, hey, yeah, come invest in me, not really care about, it, not really have your interests in mind and all that stuff. So it's absolutely critical um, that they do have your interests in mind. And, and you're absolutely right, too. Uh, you know, you want to make sure that as a passive investor, your your strategies align with what's going on with that deal, right? Because, you know, if they're saying it's going to be a 10 year hold and you're expecting a five year hold, like it's not going to be good for you, right? And, uh, yeah, you you brought up a lot of great points and they're extremely valid, especially for for past investors. So I appreciate you uh, bringing that up. Listen, man, there's a lot going on in the market right now, especially for multifamily investors. What do you guys focus on for the rest of 2023 or maybe six to 12 months out from now? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, everybody's talking about rates and the impact that that's having. Like, it doesn't mean the deals are not going to get done. It, it just means that it's harder to make the numbers work. So you, you just have to comb through more deals, do more underwriting, and, and hope you find something. One thing that we found that has been successful on, you know, like a recent acquisition that we did was um, the, a loan assumption. Mm. So someone already has an existing loan, uh, still has enough time on it to make sense uh, to take it over. Um, but like in our case, they still had like seven years left on the loan at a 3.48. Wow. Straight, which would have been great two years ago, let alone in this environment. Um, <laughs> so to, to be able to take that over, and um, I think it's had like, um, I don't know, like a, a year of 
interest only left on it too, which is, wow. is just amazing. So if you can find deals like that and work with the sellers, you know, and the and the lenders, obviously, then that's great. Now those deals aren't easy to find, but it's certainly something that piques our interest if we're looking through materials from brokers and it and it says, you know, assumable loan or or something to that effect. It's like, oh, um, and you know, our, our ears perk up. But uh, other than that, it's just underwriting a lot more deals um, in order to find ones that make sense. Because we're also still at a point where a lot of sellers think their property is worth more than buyers think it's worth <laughs> based on the, the current environment. And there's going to come an inflection point where that starts to, to shift. But until sellers get there, then we're at this like awkward stage uh, that I think we're at. Right now, I just I don't know how much longer that can last before you know reality sets in and things start to to normalize between buyers and sellers. So we'll we'll see because we're doing a lot of underwriting and things are coming in like a million, two million under what sellers are asking, and we're like we're not trying to be jerks about it. We're like literally yeah. this these are the best numbers we could do. You know when we go back to the brokers. We're like, do do you even want us to submit this, or would this, <laughs> you know, would this be insulting? Because we don't we don't want to, you know, burn any bridges either. But right, you know, we're telling them this is what the underwriting is showing us based on the returns that we're trying to give to investors as well. And even for investors, there's some expectation management that probably needs to happen in terms of like preferred return, right? Like this isn't 2021, you know, and you shouldn't really expect a 9% preferred return maybe maybe 6 to 7% is going to be the new normal for at least the next couple of years uh is it still better than than what you're getting in your high yield savings account or your retirement account well then maybe it makes sense if it doesn't it doesn't but you know again just that expectation management piece on on all different sides of this equation Yep, absolutely right, man. I love that you brought up ex uh, managing expectations because it's so critical right now, especially with the shift that's happening. And, you know, it's it's all interesting times. So I'll be curious to see how it plays out. We'll be following along with you and uh, see what you guys are up to over the next six, 12 months, man. But uh, Tim, this has been a great conversation. Before we get out of here, tell delicious what you have going on. I know you got a free resource. And then also let us know how we can get in contact with you. Sure. If anyone wants to get in contact with me, they can catch me at Tim at ZanaInvestments.com. They can obviously go to the, the website as well, zonainvestments.com. Um, I'm really active on LinkedIn. So I ready to you know connect, follow with me there. I'm all on, on all the other socials too, but uh, LinkedIn is where, where I really focus my energies. And um, in terms of you know freebies, uh, make sure that they go to zonainvestments.com slash cheat sheet. There they can get what I call the passive investor cheat sheet. And what that is, is basically uh, a dictionary for all the jargon and terms that we use in multifamily syndication, because it can it can be an alphabet soup sometimes. So what I've done is I've taken the like 33 top most used terms and I've I've given them definitions, but in plain English and with mm. examples so that anyone could understand them, because I know how intimidating it was. When I first started, you know, hearing all these words and reading them. So I wanted to make it as easy as possible for folks. 
Awesome. We're going to make sure to put all that stuff in the show notes, Tim. And uh, that cheat sheet sounds like a, a real great resource. So if you haven't checked it out yet, go to Tim's website, grab that cheat sheet. You'll be off and running. Man, again, this has been a great conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today, Tim. Yeah, I appreciate it too. One final quick plug. Um, if people are into podcasts, and I'm assuming they are, if they're listening to yours, <laughs> uh, they, they can check out my podcast as well, Journey to Multifamily Millions on all the podcasting platforms. And hopefully I'll have Uh, you as an amazing guest on there one day too love to do that man everybody go check out tim's podcast excellent show tim thanks again man really appreciate it thank you again hey real quick before we get out of here do me a huge favor and leave a rating and review for the podcast we're always looking to bring you guys the best insights and strategies for building our real estate portfolios and your ratings and reviews really help with getting top guest speakers that are the best in the real estate investing business promise this will only take you a few seconds and I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for being awesome, guys. Cheers.